Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Mask mandates across the country are almost entirely lifted now, which is leaving many feeling a little exposed whether they choose to wear a mask or not. How are you moving forward now that mandates are over? Will you continue to mask or are you ready to be in public without? That's the question we're asking over on the What She Said Talk Facebook page today. So jump on over after today's show and leave your thoughts. But first, let's talk about today's lineup because it's another fantastic show today, starting with Commissioner Katie Ward, who joins me for the third installment of Level the Paying Field. Today, we jump into the gender wage gap and how to close it for good. As usual, Katie comes to the conversation armed with information you need to know so you can advocate for yourself. Ageism is something we're not talking about enough, especially when it comes to women in the workforce. Incredibly, in all of the discussions, webinars, research, white papers, and thought pieces that have been written about the she-covery from the devastating impacts of COVID, not one piece, not one single call to action has identified the difficulties that women in this age group experience or will face. Karen Schulman Dupuis is a shift disturber on a mission to make this invisible group of women highly visible to policymakers and joins me today to discuss. Anne Brody has new entertainment with the disturbing Alice starring Kiki Palmer, the absolutely bizarre life imitating art imitating life movie about the Tiger King and Carol Baskins on Showcase. We Crashed on Apple TV, starring Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, and the amazing Ava DuVernay's new movie, DMZ, with Rosario Dawson on Crave. Dr. Prachi Srivastava is back to continue our discussion on the education system. This week, we take a closer look at financing education and what it will take to get our kids back on track. Incredibly, Prachi shares that the government is underspending even when the dollars are there for them to disperse. Plus, she shares what the government needs to do to get our kids caught up. Janelle Simpson, a senior law clerk, paralegal, motivational speaker, and life coach in Toronto, joins me to share details on her first book, Commitment to a Deceitful Liar, that offers a peek into her life from being raised in a West Indian home with all its beliefs and myths, to unlearning instilled toxic generational cycles and relearning how to move to new levels. Finally, Kelly Lavallee wants you to save money in your divorce. Her new book, Untying the Knot, offers up handy strategies and preparatory tips for making sure each person gets the best settlement possible. She joins me today to share a little bit of what people can expect in terms of costs if they are heading to divorce. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. With a mission to close the gender wage gap in Ontario, the Pay Equity Office works to make the world a more equitable place for women to work, live, and thrive. 
Ontario's Pay Equity Office and What She Said have partnered for a three-part series on a woman's worth. Last month, Commissioner Katie Ward joined me to discuss the care economy and how we undervalue it. You can find more on that over on whatshesaidtalk.com to listen to the interview and read a more in-depth article on what it is and how we can change the way we value unpaid labor. In this third segment with Commissioner Katie Ward, we are discussing the gender wage gap and how to close it for good. Welcome back, Katie. Thank you for having me. It's it's one of these things I, I, you know, it's that classic protest sign. Why are we still talking about this? So why are we? <laughs> I got to lead with some good news. Um, you know, the gender wage gap is closing. Um, it's not closing evenly. You know, we know that for women uh, of color, uh, non-binary, racialized, uh, all the intersectionality, indigenous, disabled, the wage gap is closing at a much slower rate. But in general, we're seeing, you know, since 1997, I was looking at some data, every single province across Canada has closed the gender wage gap between 5 to 13%. So it's closing. It's closing for a lot of reasons, um, which helps us understand why it's persisting. And, the, you know, 30% of the wage gap is explainable. We can understand it by, you know, women take time off because of care responsibilities or they tend to work in part-time labor um, or they're they're taking more uh, sporadic work because of, you know, unpaid care responsibilities that we talked about last, last month. Um, but 70% of the gender wage gap remains unexplained. And this is the unexplained part that is the biggest challenge. It is um, absolutely rooted in biases and rooted in stereotypes that we have about women's quote unquote women's work and how we value that work so you know we've gone together we've talked about just how women have clustered in our first segment together clustered in um, certain types of work and then that work is undervalued and therefore paid less and that work tends to be you know gendered like it's domestic or it's care things that we think women should just do Um, and then you know women have to take on a, a significant percentage of unpaid care work, right? Women around the world spend on average more than twice as much time on unpaid and domestic work than men, which obviously impacts their ability to participate in the economy and get paid work. So, you know, when we talk about all of this now, we move into, well, let's level the pay field. Uh, Let's move into a space where we actually confront those biases that that allow that 70% of the unexplained gender wage gap to exist. So has the pandemic set us back? Good question. You know, um, materially, it's put women back in terms of labor market participation. And we know over time that labor market participation contributes to the gender wage gap. Um, you know, from 2018 to 2021, we did see a about a 1%, uh, actually a 2% close in the gender wage gap in, in Ontario, 1% close average overall. But that is also, you know, a tricky stat because in some ways, um, men and women's men's wages are becoming lower because A, advanced manufacturing and very high paying jobs are going away. Uh, Unionization rates are just decreasing. So men's pay is also coming down. So when we see an average pay in general coming down, the gap is going to close. So, um, but that is to say, you know, progress is being made. With, With COVID, the biggest concern is women's exodus from the workforce. You know, we saw women's participation drops the lowest it's been in 30 years. And it's bouncing back, but it's coming back slower than men's. And this is linked to um, just responsibilities outside of work and the kind of social 
cultural, even religious ideologies about where women belong and what type of work women should be doing. We've talked a lot in the past year on this show about pay transparency. And, you know, when when employers list jobs, they often don't list what the job is paying, which can be used against who's ever applying. Um, so what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a, a, big, a big question, you know, and employers have many reasons when they talk about pay transparency, it's, it's competitive, it's all of these things, right? Um, the Pay Equity Act is one tool and pay equity legislation is a tool that addresses the gender wage gap from a, a point of view. It does require transparency in pay because when you apply the Pay Equity Act, we, we look at compensation data across a company and we compare jobs that are primarily done by women with jobs that are primarily done by men. And we look at the equal value of the, those works. So it becomes uh, transparent when you apply when you apply the the um, Pay Equity Act within a company. You know, this is something that's happening um, organically, right? Sites like Glassdoor and other organizations are just starting to do it. So I think it's becoming a a tool that companies see is, is important for them in their competitive recruitment process. And it's a remedy, you know, women and men listening to the show, you can use the gender, uh, sort of the Pay Equity Act to get to uh, transparency because a key part of the act is um, analyzing all compensation data. So it becomes very clear who's getting paid for what type of work and what the value of that work is. This is what we, you know, our focus is on addressing the systemic devaluation of jobs that women are doing. And so that varies by company, right? Um, a, a secretary in one company might be male dominated and might be female dominated in another. It's generally a female dominated sector, clerical work. Um, but we look at the the individual company and what's happening in there in terms of their compensation structures and whether it's equitable or not. And one of the things, you know, um, that I think is encouraging though, is Ontario is really a leader uh, in pay equity. It is. Thank you for mentioning that. You know, we were uh, one of the first jurisdictions globally to introduce a Pay Equity Act that applies to both the public and private sector. So we we did see a few earlier acts, but they only apply to public sector employees. Ours is blanketed to public and private. If there's 10 plus employees, it applies. So, you know, we and we have one of the most rigorous pay equity acts um, out there. You know, the the um, OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, just recently put out a report on pay equity globally. And I was looking at uh, the criteria they were measuring. And Ontario's is one of the more stricter in terms of its application and in terms of the way that it um, is able to enforce and follow up on uh, companies actually complying with the act. It's a legal requirement in Ontario. Okay, so actually, so if somebody is, you know, listening to this and they're thinking that the company they're working for, they've applied for, is not following the law, what is their recourse? Well, they are able to apply for uh, an application for for an investigation through the Pay Equity Office, so payequity.gov.oa.ca, and that's anonymous. So they can fill that in without any um, knowledge and of, of who's putting the application. And we also have provisions in the act, and this is an important point. We have provisions in the act that protect the applicant. So if there's some kind of discipline or they're dismissed, say, you know, mysteriously a few months after making the inquiry, they can come back and uh, make a, a 
an application on uh, unjust dismissal. So we protect the individuals who are coming to us to make this investigation and we do it on their on their behalf anonymously. That's incredible. That's really good news for people who are who want to uh, share, but maybe afraid or hesitant. Uh, what's coming up? Anything we should know about that you're working on that's, you know, uh, going to continue to close this gap? Sure. We continue to strive to level the paying field. And I, we spoke earlier when we launched uh, a six-part series called Level the Paying Field, and, and folks can go to levelthepayingfield.ca. Uh, because you hear that, hear that analogy all the time, level the playing field in terms of sports. Um, and you know, there would never be a scenario where you would watch, say, a hockey game or a football game or a soccer game and the playing field would be tilted. Like that just would never happen. Um, so we should get there. And that's the point within in, in pay and compensation. It should also be, be level. So that's a six part series where women and men, if they want to get educated on the various facets of how you know inequality, how technology, how gendering certain jobs has led to uh, wider discrimination in the workplace. They can listen to that series on wherever they get their podcast. They can also listen and watch uh, conversations happening. You know, we're focused on um, education and outreach to get just to educate men and women uh, all intersectional identities in there about what is a gender wage gap and how we can work collectively to close it. Katie, as usual, this was incredibly uh, informative. And I want people to know that you also do a deeper dive on the blog, uh, way more information. People can catch all three of, of these interviews on what she said, talk.com. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful exploring you know, a woman's worth uh, with you. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Women aged 40 to 64 experience career disruption due to the intersection of bias and discrimination based on gender and ageism. The devastation to their careers, mental health, and financial security can be shattering. My next guest wants to change that. Karen Shulman Dupuy is a shift disturber on a mission to make this invisible group of women highly visible to policymakers. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you so much for having me, Candice. I'm so pleased you're here. I have to say, in the notes that you sent over to me, it was interesting to me that you said in all of the papers and research and webinars about the she covery, nobody has addressed this group. Literally not one. I think that there was the Hill Times, from what I've seen so far in the last two years, has just recently also said that Canada needs to do some policy work with regards to women and aging but nothing specifically with regards to the career disruption alignment that happens with women in this age group. Let's talk about the reasons for disruption. What are some of the things that are throwing us out of the workforce and then losing the ground we've, we've made? 
Well, uh, you know, I so I won't spend a lot of time on identifying the fact that gendered ageism is a thing because there's quite literally 50 years of academic literature that actually identifies this. Uh, it hasn't had a lot of attention, mind you, in, in the workplace literature, which is really interesting, um, but really is just an indicator of the bias that's there in the research space as well. Um, but how women are disrupted, it shows up in a multitude of different ways. There's kind of the the typical um, what we ex what we assume are disruptions like sexual harassment or abusive bosses or toxic environments and and that stuff that's actually a little bit more easily identifiable identifiable rather. But where it also shows up is just women not being promoted or not being given leadership opportunities or being given opportunities that we call the glass cliff, which is where, you know, they're put into projects that people know are going to fail, but as long as they're associated with them, that's an okay casualty. Um, women are literally ghosted in the workplace, just not included in meetings, not included in projects and discussions. And really, it's it's astounding just how many different ways this can show up. And this isn't just corporate Canada. You know, this is also in in more care industries. This happens in, in more retail services and service industries as well. You know, it shows up in a multitude of different ways. This is just a snippet of like how women actually experience it. And, you know, one of the things I found most interesting was that a lot of women in this age group turn to entrepreneurship, not because it's some magic, wonderful life, but because they really have no choice. Absolutely. And it's really important that we identify this, that women do turn to entrepreneurship out of necessity, not out of desire. Now, anyone, I've been working in the entrepreneurship space for many years, and anyone will tell you entrepreneurship is hard. Um, but I think the really interesting piece of this as well, Candice, is that out of all the women that I interviewed uh, for my master's research on this question, 100% of those women did not call themselves entrepreneurs. So all of this incredible programming that's out there that's being delivered by the federal government, the provincial government, municipalities, all of them that are all involved in this economic development support, not one of them is actually changing the narrative about how to engage these women. They don't see themselves in the literature. They don't see themselves in the imagery. They don't see themselves even in the titles of the programming. And quite frankly, the programming that's out there for startups and entrepreneurs, and I use the quotes on those, is that, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is just a cut and paste copy of Techstars and Y Combinator, which are well-known, globally recognized, phenomenal programs. Um, but women are not invited into that space because they just don't see themselves in that space traditionally. So what are the solutions? What can we do to raise awareness around this? Well, I think honestly, one of the first things that I need to raise awareness about is just that women who are 40 to 64 have been completely ignored in this she recovery or in this pandemic recovery. There's literally no consideration. Now, as with most questions, people come to these things because of lived experience. And, you know, I was in this age group. And so, you know, uh, I'm currently 52 years old. And I look at women who are in this age group that either have still children at home or have grandchildren or have parents that they're taking over. Uh, their care for. So we're, we're called the, the, the sandwich generation. Um, and part of it is recognizing that the programming, the resources, the way to engage women traditionally um, has just ignored these women and these kinds of constraints that they have in their lives. And the way that they're doing it is not the same for everybody across the board. It just doesn't serve them at all. So part of it is, as you said, from the very top of this, if we don't get women in these stories uh, in front of policymakers, and then we, we will remain invisible within those policy 
So I'm trying to absolutely change that and, and build and amplify the stories that are surrounding this issue. Yeah, you know, maybe we should be doing a top 40 over 40 instead of all these lists of uh, top top 25 <laughs> under 25. Literally you know, one of those pieces. <laughs> yeah, absolutely sitting on my mind map of like, how do we disrupt this and change this, right? And uh, and I think it's, you know, there. I mean, there's a lot of great memes out there that are like, you know, don't give me the top 20 under 20, you know, give me like the 70-year-old who's written their first piece or their first novel, or, you know, the 60-year-old the who's built, you know, a huge, a huge successful company company. Like those are stories that just come with a whole bunch of different background and insights. And, you know, this is a huge question, right? And it's a huge issue. And, you know, it's hard to be pithy about it and say, here's how we can move these things forward. Um, but I really do think it's really important that we actually start identifying that as much as we uh, honor and applaud and celebrate, you know, a universal daycare approach, except for Ontarians, apparently up until this point, you know, that these are really important things. So this isn't an either or situation. This is a both and situation. All right. I agree. We have to talk about this a lot more, Karen. I thank you for bringing this to my attention. Uh, I hope to have you back again soon. But in the meantime, where can people connect with you and find out more about your research? I really appreciate this, Candace, so much. Uh, anyone can reach me through my website, which is womendisrupted.com uh, or .ca, whichever you prefer. And uh, just send me a note through there and I will definitely get back to you. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. They say... Time heals everything, but I'm still waiting. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. Anne, what do you have for us this week? Because I got to tell you, uh, going through this preview was mind-blowing this week. <laughs> yes, and maybe not in the most hopeful way, but it's midwinter, and this is what we get, but they're they're powerful. So the first one is Alice, which stars Kiki Palmer, and she's fantastic. She plays a slave in the Southern South, um, who undergoes a lot of abuse by her boss, Johnny Lee Miller, who is also using her as his mistress. Well, the, there's 13 slaves to three white owners, and they plan a revolt. Revolt happens. She runs away, finds herself on a highway, and it's 1973. A truck. Yeah, so I was, I was a little tripped up by this. So it's not a it's time, time travel, travel. Yeah, It is time travel. Well, yes. Yes, it is. So now Common plays the bus driver. He picks her up, sees what distress she's in. She has no clue where she is or what's happening. Um, they go home. He looks after her and she becomes a civil rights activist and, and rather violent. And they actually go back in time a little bit. I, I don't want to give too much away. It's a really, really cray-cray kind of a setup. Very interesting. And she's fantastic. I thought it was pretty awkward the way it was executed, though. And uh, I got to say, Common just mumbled the whole time. But <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting idea. And it's in theaters now, in case you want to see it. Okay. Now, the next one, I, I was, it was, I was like, this is so weird. It's life imitating art, imitating life, and on and on. How do we have a movie about Joe and Carol? <laughs> I know. 
I know. First, we had the documentary and, um, you know, that was uh, well received. I refused to watch. I didn't want to watch anything about animal abuse and I still don't like it. Um, and they, but they managed to escape that a little bit in the series. So now we have Joe versus Carol, which is um, Catherine. Uh, oh, what is her name? Kate McKinnon plays Carol Baskin, the animal rights activist versus uh, John Cameron Mitchell is Joe Exotic, who is this loose cannon, um, abusive and violent, murderous guy who we know from the series on Netflix. So this one is on Stack TV on Showcase um, starting today. And it really bears watching because of the performances by Kate McKinnon and Kyle McLaughlin, who plays her husband. It's kind of painful to go through everything that, that they went through, but it's it's definitely worthwhile. And do you come out on one side or the other end by the end of the movie? Are you are you oh, yeah. team? Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good to know. All right. Let's talk let's talk about We Crashed because uh, I was I actually dove into the story after watching the trailer for this. It's a fascinating story. Yeah, and it concerns Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin, Rebecca, and her husband, Adam Newman. Now, these two uh, created um, WeWork, which was a sort of a startup, and they went from being unable to pay $750 a month to rent an office to $47 billion in 10 years' time. And they created all kinds of offshoots, like We Give, We Earn, We Bank, blah, blah, blah. But what stands out is their complete narcissism and greed and rejection of business ethics. They have a certain way of looking at life. She tries to set up a school called We Grow, but that's where the children, little wee children, learn what they want. They don't learn anything basic, and she thinks this is the way to go. So anyway, that was completely untenable, and that started their downfall fantastic story about pride and, and fall it, it, just amazing and it's on apple tv plus all right and uh last but not least because ava duvernay absolutely love her tell me about tmz oh my goodness strange timing it's about a dmz area in other words uh, manhattan is blocked off from the united states and considered a different country so it's it's uh, militarized it's fenced in um, and there are refugees trying to head out. Uh, so uh, Rose, Rosalie, um, Rosario Dawson, I always get stuck on that, plays a medic who runs a hospital. They're overwhelmed with injuries and casualties. Um, but when the emigration begins from New York, she loses her son in the crowd. And so she's got to stay behind, not only to help the patients, but to find her son. Well, Benjamin Bratt, who plays her former lover, is a gang leader, and it looks like he's going to win the election to run the DMC, D, DMZ, Demilitarized Zone, or DMZ, as we like to say. So she's contending with militias, gangs, demagogues, warlords, and this total no man's land. Um, and through it all, she becomes a symbol of hope, which is really nice. But I just think it's unfortunate timing for this to come out however and it's pretty dark yeah it, it reminds me a little bit of escape from new york with kurt russell years and years ago you're right 
Yes, indeed. It certainly does. But, you know, I trust Ava DuVernay and people do. But I just I just found it to be a little bit hard, too hard hitting right now when we're all feeling kind of vulnerable and Ukraine is under attack. But that's just me. Fair warning to anybody who's looking for entertainment this weekend. And thank you so much. And we'll see you next week with more. And the Oscars. Oscars. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. A period of normalcy coming. Coming up. Coming up. (laughs) Thanks, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. My faith is shaking, but I Gotta keep trying. Gotta keep my Last month, I was joined by Dr. Prachi Srivastava to discuss equity issues in the education system and how we address those. You can find that interview on What She Said Talk with Candace Sampson on your favorite podcast provider. Today, though, we're going to jump into financing the education system. And as usual, Prachi is here armed with data and facts you need to know today, well ahead of the election coming up in June. Welcome back to the show, Prachi. Hi, Candice. Thanks for having me back on. So, um, yeah, we're underspending. So the Financial Accountability Office, uh, which is an independent organization, and it looks at um, the provincial expenditure, just released a report uh, last week uh, saying, you know, looking at the final quarter uh, of uh, 2021, and it found uh, an underspend across all all sectors of $5.5 billion dollars. Uh, that's pretty substantial given, you know, we're looking at 2021 and looking at the pandemic issues. Uh, it looked at social sectors and it found education had an underspend of $212 million. Um, it also found children's services to have an underspend and uh, in particular, actually, uh, underspends in the area of autism uh, provision and support services. So, you know, why I bring that in as well is just, you know, when we're talking about education, we're looking at uh, children and youth. And really what we want to look at is to see what services are being provided to them and how they're being financed uh, throughout this recovery period. Um, In the sector of education, I mean, it's now becoming clear that even when there are uh, quote unquote commitments or planned expenditure, uh, the province is actually underspending. And that's important to, to understand because when we see press releases, um, we see the opposite message. There's been a pretty strong message from the government over the last two years about the fact that there's been, you know, the highest uh, investment in public education ever by this government. Um, But that's not what we're seeing when we look at the numbers. So it's mind boggling to me that we're underspending in a situation that requires a big spend right now because of all of the closures we've had, um, the um, 
the massive amount of investment that needs to go in to get kids caught up and, uh, you know, uh, prepared for the future. So what, where does the, where does the money come from? How should we be spending it? And um, how do we address this with the underspending? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's important to understand that this report comes on top of another report um, that made, you know, in June of 21, there was a report that came out again from the Financial Accountability Office that showed there was actually a net decrease to education in the tune of 500 million. Um, now, I haven't seen a sectoral review uh, by the FAO after that. I mean, you know, we're still, I think they're still looking at the numbers and I don't know if they're going to do just a sectoral report on education. But this seems to be a pattern. Uh, the expenditure for education, well, in Canada, uh, at the provincial, uh, you know, we're looking at education. Ed education is a provincial responsibility. So the expenditure and the budgets for education come from the ministries of education for whichever province it is that we're discussing. And that's why it's important to understand what the province is doing uh, with the expend with, with with anything in terms of, you know, education. They also set the, the curriculum, but of course, the curriculum and reforms need to be financed. So I think what's important to understand is the fact that we have the resources because the resources were in, in some sense, you know, planned. These are these were planned expenditures that were then not made. So that that's very important to understand as well, is that we have the resources, but they're not being spent. So then the question needs to be, OK, why is that? And the why question is not something that the FAO can provide. Um, it isn't a question. Is it an answer that, you know, any of us can really provide? That's an answer that has to be provided by uh, the authorities, by the provincial authorities to answer why that is that it, that that is happening. Uh, but we can also note that there was uh, given the pandemic, if we're talking about the pandemic itself, there was an outlay, an emergency outlay to the provinces from the federal government as well um, uh, for uh, pandemic relief. And there was an outlay uh, or a commitment from the from the federal government um, last, not, la not, not last year, but the year before for uh, education actually and and Ontario and it was done per capita so it was like whichever provinces had the highest uh demographic of children in schools got uh, proportionally more more money so Ontario and Quebec got more money for that um and it's very unclear in terms of how or whether that money was spent and that was in the tune of this is off the top of my head that was in the tune of a few hundred million dollars um, might have been 700 million or 500 million. I can't remember for Ontario. So these are all and that, you know, that's quite an emergency kind of expenditure. All of those, what, what this really means is what we need is, is a proper audit of um, education expenditure in Ontario for this year, looking at the emergency uh, outlays that were like one-time emergency, quite out of the norm, for the federal government to act um, to support provinces, uh, in it, in addition to the uh, planned expenditures and then the actual outlay. 
So what, what then, you know, in your mind are the immediate spends that need to happen in education? What needs to be addressed first? Well, we need to, we need to see, um, I mean, firstly, we shouldn't be underspending. I mean, that's, that's, if we have the resources, it just makes no sense why they're not being spent in a situation where we've had, again, you know, the longest closures in Canada amongst the longest in North America and Europe. If we look at it as a jurisdiction, we're at 28 weeks. Um, I think at this point, it's, it's unlikely that we will have a mass, another mass closure this year. I mean, we can't say for sure, but it looks like it's unlikely. Um, and that is, you know, primarily due to, I think, the government, uh, governments, you know, being much more um, reticent about doing mass closures. But the issues here really have to do with the fact of re recovery. We should be seeing a recovery plan and we haven't seen that. So, you know, what I've been saying for the last two years and the recommendations don't change because they're coming from emergency education literature and planning is that we should be seeing an overhaul of the entire curriculum from JK up to grade 12, um, looking to see, you know, which parts of the curriculum should be uh, expanded, which parts should be put into the following year for any grade, and which part from the previous year should be brought into the current year. So when we do that, you need to have resources to support that. There should be off the top uh, introduction of programs that, um, you know, would boost core skills um, and psychosocial skills for all students in every grade. And we should be having resources that are being mobilized to schools in areas that are more marginalized and to students within schools that have uh, particular vulnerabilities and that are also coming from marginalized backgrounds. So that's where the conversations and the plans should really be happening. That requires new resources. There are governments in other countries, including the U.S. Um, and, you know, in England and in, in, in other parts of Europe that have introduced uh, new programs with new expenditure, with new net expenditures. Uh, and we haven't seen that in Ontario. There was an announcement in Quebec that there would be some kind of a tutorial or like broad tuition program. I don't know what the what the movement is on that. But we haven't seen very substantial announcements from this government um, on what to do for recovery. There have been some small announcements, uh, but again, the plans are unclear and the expenditure is quite low, um, you know, $70 million um, spend, well, planned spending. But again, when you look at the net spending, when you look at how much is new money, we're not seeing new money. So I, I want to repeat, last year, the FAO came out with a $500 million cut. That's what it said, that, that this government has instituted a $500 million cut going into this year's uh, school year. So in 21-22, I also want to draw attention to the fact that there were $900 million that were taken out of the existing budget for this year that were given directly to households in the form of direct household cash transfers. So people were just given, I think, $400 or $450 per child that was in school. That was coming directly out of the education budget. And it, doesn't, it didn't really support schools or students in school, right? So if you think about a particular class, the 30 students per class and you take $400 out 
you're talking about, you know, roughly $12,000 per class that's been taken away, right? And then, so if you add that to the 500 million, you're talking about 1.4, uh, 1.4 billion that's kind of been lost. And then this year, the province said that it would, uh, you know, infuse $1.6 billion. When you really look at the numbers, you realize that 500 million of that is really reserve funds from the boards. So boards that already had the money, they could, they were allowed to spend that. It wasn't new money. So again, if you look at that, we're not looking at, we're not seeing net new money. And the FAO's new report, that was my hunch. The FAO's new report shows that actually the expenditure is down anyway. So this is, you know, in my mind, it's kind of an accounting exercise that really shows the punchline is that we're not seeing new money going into education. When all of the global institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, the G20, UNESCO, they're all saying that education budgets at the very least have to be protected, which means you don't cut them and you don't underspend, but they should be boosted. And particularly in high income countries like Canada, we should not be in a situation where we're seeing this. All right. Well, that's why we keep having these conversations so people are informed and to ask those important questions of their MPs uh, as we lead up to the Ontario election. Prachi, thank you so much for joining me. You're going to be back next month uh, with another discussion in and around education because we can't possibly fit this into just one uh, 10-minute episode uh, interview. So uh, we'll see you again next month. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Candice. It's a pleasure to be here. To a Deceitful Liar is a non-fiction book by first-time author Janelle Simpson, a senior law clerk, paralegal, motivational speaker, and life coach in Toronto. Janelle offers a peek into her life from being raised in a West Indian home with all its beliefs and myths to unlearning instilled toxic generational cycles and relearning how to move to new levels. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Janelle. Thank you, Candice. So was there a moment that you thought, I have to share my story, or was it something that built over time? No, there, there was definitely a moment. Um, it was when I realized that I had promised myself I was going to break away from generational cycles that I was raised in. And then when I found myself reliving my mom's life, the things I didn't want to repeat. Um, I wanted to write the book, but then every time I tried to, I was like shying away from it. And then more and more, I had my son and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to set a different foundation for him. That's funny you say that. That That's a moment I think that a lot of parents have is that we think we're going to be so different from our parents and then we see it play out with our children and it can knock you back a little bit. That's exactly what it did. And then when I had my daughter, I was like, I cannot allow you to repeat the things and go through the things I did blind. Now, obviously, this is a book, though. This is a, you know, um, this story, we have six minutes. This is taking you an entire book to tell your story. But can you give sort of a synopsis for listeners of what they can expect when they pick up your book? Uh, they can expect something raw, something 100% authentic that they can relate to. A lot of times we go through things as children and we're told not to talk about it. 
being raped, being molested, uh, people doing things to us and us not knowing how to deal with it. No one explaining to us that when we become an adult, there's not one way to live life. You're going to go through your own path, your own cycles in life, and you're going to heal in your own way. And not because something negative happened in your life means that it's supposed to remain negative. You can use it to flourish. Um, they're going to read about things that West Indian people go through, but, and they tell their kids, you know, shut up about it. Don't talk to anybody about it. A lot of us don't see therapists because we were taught that we're not supposed to tell people what went on in our household. So we carry that pain and we don't know how to escape and heal from it. Was this book a healing journey for you or were you what you would consider healed when you began to share the story? I'll be honest with you. I considered myself healed when I started to share my story. But when I started writing, I healed on a completely different level I didn't expect to heal on. And that's when I realized, hey, you got to do your short version healing book and explain how you healed when you're writing this book to help other people start their healing journey. And that's when I released my healing book with this book. So is that your hope then, that when people pick up this book, that they will begin the process of their healing? Begin the process of their healing, begin the process of having conversations, um, begin the process of telling people their own story, writing their own books. People in your life may be hurt. Did you get pushback from anybody in your life when you began to share details of your life story? Um, so my brother is my, my, one of my bestest friends. And I did go to him for advice first and let him know that I was writing certain things. And he said, but why? And when he questioned me, but why? I trembled for a little bit because I was about to go to an interview. And he said, but why? And I gave him my why. And he said, then guess what? You don't need validation from anybody. And it doesn't matter how anybody feels because your story is supposed to help who it's supposed to help. So no, I'm no pushback at all. That's fantastic. That must have helped you write um, freely then, really, and without any chains sort of attached worry about what others might think of you sharing this very personal journey. Yes. Because I honestly believe that when God gives you an assignment and purpose, you have to be obedient and follow it. All right. I want people to be able to connect with you and find your book, obviously. So where can they find the book? Where can they connect with you and follow along with you on social? It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads, Walmart, Target, all on the online platforms. Um, you can go to my website, www.JanelleSimpson.com. Also, you can follow my Instagram page, which is life's underscore deceit. That's L-I-F-E-S underscore deceit. D-E-C-E-I-T. And I'm also starting my own podcast soon. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's great. <laughs> yeah. uh, that That's great. And believe me, that's another commitment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Janelle. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Candice. And have yourself a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
Divorce can be expensive, even for those that part ways as friends. As a chartered professional accountant and certified divorce financial analyst, my next guest is uniquely poised to ensure couples are financially prepared for the negotiations that ensue in even the most amicable of divorces. Kelly Lavallee has also penned a new book called Untying the Knot that is filled with page after page of useful advice that Kelly has acquired helping hundreds of couples arrive at the best possible outcome for their situation. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you very much. So I have to ask, uh, do you, is there a bare minimum cost to get divorced that you found? Sort of a threshold that people could expect? Uh, I, I think no matter what your circumstance, because it's relative, it's going to be painful. It's going to be a painful amount because if your situation is simpler, it often means maybe you're younger and your asset base is smaller. Um, and so even though you might only be paying $5,000, I shouldn't say only, that's going to feel painful. So, I mean, the fees are relative to the nature of the breakdown of the relationships or the way the two people choose to handle it and the financial complexity. So the more complex, the more expensive. But I think so it's difficult to put a number on it, except that I can assure you it will be an uncomfortable number. Okay. So is there something that people should be doing to prepare uh, before they go to court? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, really, most people happily avoid going to trial when they get divorced. That's the good news, right? Like the vast majority of people. But that doesn't mean that, that the vast majority afford, avoids some type of litigation. Litigation just means we, we got to a, a tough spot and we maybe need the court's help to just nudge us forward a bit, right? So, um, but I think that there are loads of things that you can do uh, yourself and with the help of your team to make things more efficient. So um, I think that the first step is an information gathering process. So a lot of people, when they're married, divide and conquer. And money is one of those areas where often one person leads the charge. Um, and so to the extent, especially if you're the person in the relationship that wasn't as focused on the finances, you need to just gain an understanding of your financial picture as a family. So what do you own and owe? What do you make and spend? Um, and gathering all that information, that's something that you can do, you know, with a limited amount, hopefully, of professionals, so it won't be too expensive. But that's definitely the first step is just to inform yourself about the family finances. And then understand that divorces, it's a legal process. It's also personal and traumatic and um, impacts the family. And the business of divorce is governed by the law. And so informing yourself about how the law applies to your particular situation, because if you've been through a divorce or if you're going through a divorce, you know that everyone has an opinion about it and they're going to share their, their experience, sort of like when you have kids um, for the first time. But every divorce is unique. So get legal advice about what your particular divorce is going to look like so that you can get prepared. You know, as you're as you're sitting here speaking, I wish, you know, in the initial days of my my divorce, I you know, I spoke with a lawyer and I spoke with a therapist, but I really delayed that conversation with a financial advisor. And I wish that that had been one of the first things I had done. Uh, I was wholly unprepared about how this would affect me. Do you have any statistics on how it affects 
income or, um, you know, your earning power or your savings, anything like that post uh, separation? I mean, I think in general, you can assume that it's going to cut your asset base in half. I mean, there are always, there's always exceptions. I'm, I'm generalizing. But when you, you know, drive in your car up to your home or if you're lucky, a cottage, you don't really think about how you own half of your assets. And so um, when you go through divorce and often cut your family pie in half, this feels like a staggering setback. But on top of that division of your assets, going through divorce can take a ridiculously long amount of time, especially if your situation is complex. And that often includes a reduction in your productivity, which can relate to a reduction in your ability to earn, or you might need more help to you know, manage life. Um, and so you're at a time where you're cutting your assets in half, you're Earning potential is likely diminished and your expenses are likely increased as you establish two households. Um, so I, I'm not sure that anyone has done a study about like quantifying how painful this is. But I would say in the short term, I haven't met anyone for whom it doesn't feel like a massive financial setback. And I mean, I hate to say this as an accountant, but to, to, to accept that that when you're going through divorce, you're going to be taking what feels like a terrible financial step backward um, will make it a little easier to cope and, and, and know that you can rebuild when you're through it. But this is definitely the rainy day that you've been saving for. And so to also put the pressure on yourself that somehow you, sh you should be able to maintain your earning potential or not increase your spend or retain all of your assets is not reasonable and it creates a lot more suffering while you're going through it. And for those that are listening and perhaps thinking about, you know, uh, you know, ending their marriage, this is your sign to save for that rainy day. Uh, and so your book, I am assuming, uh, helps people go through the process from start to finish. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, my hope for it is that it gives people some comfort and some confidence that they can handle it when you when you first embark on this divorcing life stage because it's not a line we step over. It's a it's a long time, a big process, a massive project. It can feel overwhelming. So my intention is to give people simple step-by-step -step process so that they can feel more confident. All right. Excellent. So I want people to be able to find your book because it sounds like something they should have in hand for the entire journey. Uh, where can they find their book? And more importantly, where can they connect with you? Uh, the best way is to my website, lavalley.ca. Any online retailers really are carrying my book. Um, and you can connect with me through my website as well. All right. Incredible. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. 
I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.